Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see everybody. Welcome to spring break, Alaska. Who needs Cancun? Um, and we, um, you know, three years ago, I found myself at an all-time low uh, physically. I had a bone disease where there was no blood flowing to my hips, so they were dying. And I was in extreme pain, and I, I couldn't walk. And because of that, also meant I couldn't exercise very much. Kind of bummed me out, and um, my eating just got out of control. And at the age of 32, I was the heaviest I'd ever been in my life. Found myself at the end of my rope. I had no idea what I needed to do, what I, what I was supposed to do. I knew I needed to change, but there's always a fear with that, right? And, and they, they say that you won't make a change until you're pain is greater than your fear, where the, where the pain of staying the same became greater than the pain and fear of needing to make a change and not knowing what to do. I turned to a local medical friend, Mark, uh, a local rolfer here in town, and uh, he'd worked on my hips, kept me playing basketball all through high school, and so I came to him January 5th, 2017, so a little bit more than three years ago. I walked into his office he took one look at me and said, you need to drop 50 pounds by St. Patrick's Day. And I said, well, it's good to see you too, Mark. <laughs> uh, it was hard, but it's what I needed to hear. And between my hips and my gluttony, my body was being destroyed. And so he gave me this strict list of foods that I needed to start eating. Couldn't f stray off that list. He took all the foods off the list that have actual flavor in them. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, but, and, I, and I feel like that was God's payback for all the years where I mocked paleo even from this stage. He has a sense of humor. And I was at a crossroads. I had to make a decision to change or not to change. I had to count the cost and decide, would I drop my Sour Patch Kids and follow Mark? Right? Would I do what he told me to do or would I continue to make excuses and deteriorate? Cliffhanger. In the book of Matthew, uh, we are looking at this section of chapters 8 through 10. We're calling it, this is the extension of Jesus' authority as king. And we saw last week in chapters 8 and 9, we looked at the healing stories of Jesus, that he was here to show his authority. And the way he proved that was by fulfilling the prophecies that said Jesus would be one, the deliverer would heal, he would cast out demons, he would do all sorts of miracles as he calmed the storm as well. And this week, we're going to see what we're supposed to do about that authority. He's showing it, so what do we do? And we're going to see that Jesus is our leader. We're called to follow him. And then next week in chapter 10, we're going to see that he sends us out as he sends the disciples on to mission. And this week, as we look at Jesus as our leader, what it looks like to follow him as our leader, we're going to look at three things in these two chapters. We're going to see the cost of following Jesus, the cause of following Jesus, and then the celebration of following Jesus. And just like with me and my Rolfer friend Mark, we have a choice to make today. The first one, the cost of following Jesus. In Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 8, excuse me, verse 18, says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Now, why are the crowds surrounding him? Well, what did we just see last week? Two verses earlier, he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. If I was healing everybody in Sildatna, I would probably gain a following too. And Jesus knows this is why they're following him. He says, let's go. He says, he gave orders to go to the other side. Other side of what? 
This is a reference to the Sea of Galilee as they're up here in the Capernaum area. And so these next two guys in our story are, are men that are coming to Jesus and saying, we want to follow you. We want to go across the, the lake with you, Jesus. We want to keep going. And let's look at how Jesus responds to these two men. First guy, a scribe, comes up to him and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, we often paint all of the scribes and Pharisees as the bad guys, the hypocrites in our story. But what we see here is a guy who, a scribe, who honestly wants to follow Jesus. Now, if that's the case, why does Jesus feel the need to let the air out of this guy's balloon? Look at what he says. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What a mood killer, Jesus. This guy wants to follow you. And why would you respond like this? Well, Jesus knows our hearts, and, and you hear in this guy's tone an overconfidence. Let's look at that. I will follow you wherever you go. This is a, a, pretty, a pretty strong, a pretty enthusiastic, um, overconfident, perhaps, response. And, you know, this scribe, what has he just seen? He's seen Jesus healing uh, the sick. He's seen him casting out demons. And so he goes, man, Jesus, this is great. This looks awesome. I will follow you on your healing tour, right? I, he can see his name up in lights now. Jesus, come see Jesus, the, the, the healing miracle worker. And here's the sideshow scribe who will teach you everything you need to know. Jesus, you could really use a guy like me. It'll be great. And Jesus says, slow your roll, which is the message translation here. He says, do you, do you have any idea what you're getting into? See, he knows a lot of people want to follow him now while it's new and exciting and he's healing everybody. But he says, do you have any idea what the road ahead is going to look like for me? And over the next two years, he's going to be on the move, literally without a place to put his head, as he's on the road most of the time. And, and, and as he continues to move, he, a lot of, he's going to gain a lot of haters out there. As he starts pointing out people's sin and their hypocrisy and their idolatry, they start to hate him and, and accuse him of claiming to be God, which he is, and eventually they kill him for it. And at that moment, these crowds, in fact, most of his disciples, they're nowhere to be seen. He says, count the cost, buddy, before you claim that you'll follow me wherever I go. And then another disciple comes up to him, it says, a guy who has been following him, apparently. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, Jesus responds to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Jesus, did you miss your coffee this morning? Like, what is going on here? These guys seem to want to be following you. You're not doing it. This seems harsh, right? He's not saying... I want to go to the circus. He's like, I want to go bury my father. I mean, it seems like a reasonable request. Now, we're not sure, but all often, culturally, this phrase, it doesn't mean, hey, my dad just died, and I want to go home and bury him, and, and then I'm coming. That, that If that was the case, culturally, the guy probably wouldn't even be here at the Jesus show. He would be back home with his family. Most of the time, this expression meant, I want to wait, I want to go back and wait for my father to die so that I can collect my inheritance What's he communicating? Once I get mine, once I'm in, when I have enough and the season of life is just right, I will follow you, Jesus. Not ready to go across that lake right now. And Jesus here is using exaggerative language. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand if it's making you sin? He is intentionally being provocative here. He's saying, let dead people worry about the dead people. Come follow me and let's focus on the alive people that we can save while there's still time. Jesus isn't saying don't care about your family. 
right? I mean, we, we see, all, look at the rest of his teaching, loving other people. He, he knows the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. That's not his point here. Like the scribe, he's saying, count the cost. That following me requires complete devotion, complete commitment to make me priority numero uno. That's number one, if you're not bilingual. That's, that's cool. Um, the cost of following Jesus is wholehearted devotion. That's what we get from this story. Jesus knows each of these guys' hearts, just like he knows your heart and my heart. And he knows what we need to deal with in our own hearts before we're really prepared to follow him. So for the over-enthusiastic, the, the overconfident follower, he says you need to slow down and ca- count the cost, the difficult road of following Jesus. When I told Mark that, that I would do anything, he goes, easy, Frankino. Do, do you realize that this includes a complete overhaul of your diet? That you're going to make a total lifestyle change. Make sure you realize what you're getting into before you just jump headlong into it. And Jesus is saying, are you just following me because you think that I'm going to make your life fun? Because of the toys that you're going to get, the healings that you're going to get? Or are you ready to go to war with me? Are you ready to suffer with me? Are you ready to do whatever I say to go wherever I say to go and, and whenever I say to do it? Which is our second guy's deal. He's going, ah, you know what, Jesus, not right now. If I, would, I, knew, I knew that if I told Mark, let, let, you know what? And I'm a, I'm a cheap guy. I've already bought all this junk food, Mark. Like, I'll just finish all the food that's currently in my refrigerator and in my pantry. And then, then, it'll be a week or two. I would have kept making excuses. Never would have done. I knew if I didn't go home that afternoon, I went home and literally threw out two giant garbage bags, which tells you a lot about what was going on in my house, of just food that was not on the paleo list right out the door. Because I knew if it wasn't now, it would never happen. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we go. I've got a couple of friends uh, with their children in Papua New Guinea, the Allens, Bart and Emily. They're the fuzzy white ones in the background of the picture. God called them to go to Papua New Guinea and preach this this year. They're going to preach the gospel. The Amdu people who have never in the history of their people group had a chance to hear the name Jesus in their own language. But there was a cost there was a cost for them. They're living overseas years at a time, and they're missing out on their families' weddings and funerals and graduations. They could have said, you know what, God? We'll follow you, but we'll do it after the kids are all grown up and out of the house. We'll do it when we get into retirement phase and there's nothing else going on. Then we'll give you our all. See, wholehearted devotion says no matter where he says to go, what he says to give up, or when he says to do it, I will obey. Now, who does that? The person in our next category, the cause of following Jesus. Why do we follow him? Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting on the t- at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, who is the author of Matthew? My, thank you. I put it on a platter for you. Thanks, Dan. I, <laughs> it's early. It's, it's daylight savings. I get it. Um, really, Ma- now, Matthew, the author of his own book, he mentions himself, and in, in, this is his one verse. He gives himself, I'm going, Matthew, this is your book. You could have given yourself a whole section, a little about the author, like a profile picture on the scroll. Like, you could have really done yourself up here. But I love the way that Matthew identifies himself in this book. All that matters about me is I was a sinful tax collector who's now following Jesus. 
And he puts himself in the middle of all of these healing stories, these miracles. He goes, you know what the greatest miracle is? That a sinner like me would be called to follow Jesus. This is a book about Jesus, not a book about Matthew. And he moves on to say, and, and Jesus reclined at table in the house, probably Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, why are the Pharisees so worked up about Jesus having a meal with these guys? Well, Rome had taken over most of the known world at this time, including Israel. And, and, and they, suffice to say, they weren't very nice about it. Um, they had this tax system. They called it um, tax farming. And they would actually farm out the responsibility to draw taxes from the local people from their own private citizens. Matthew's a Jew, but he's working for Rome. And so Matthew most likely is holed up at this little tax uh, collecting customs booth. They are, they're situated here in Capernaum. It's right on the border, a little fuzzy, but the word Capernaum there, it's right on the border of Syria and the nation of Israel. And so this was kind of like a little border patrol. And as they would come in, Matthew would charge taxes on goods that were coming into Israel. And, and, and Rome was famous for some of the most abusive taxation in human history. They would often say that if there was a bad harvest year, an entire village sometimes would relocate just if they heard that a tax collector was coming to town. It was bad. They saw these, these tax collectors as traitors working for Rome, the bad guy, big brother. Not to mention, these guys would often take a lot more money than they needed to take so that they could get some money themselves. And this usually especially exploited the poor. William Lane, a commentator, says it this way. When a Jew entered the custom services, this tax collection like Matthew, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended not just for him, but to his whole family. Which is why the Pharisees go, Jesus, you're not supposed to be eating with these guys. In their culture, when you ate with somebody, it, it symbolized a covenant of friendship. And, and the Pharisees said, we don't make friends with these kind of guys, Jesus. We don't accept sinful extortionists in cahoots with, with Rome, like these guys. And I love Jesus' response. When he, hear, when he hears them say this, he said, those who, have, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, imagine a doctor coming into a room full of people who think they're healthy. And trying to go, no fear, I'm here to take care of you all. And he comes over to somebody, tries to give them like mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. You're like, what are you doing? I'm doing fine. You have cancer. You have six weeks. I'm good. Like, what are you talking about, you quack? Right? I th if I think I'm healthy, I'm not calling the doctor. Who's calling the doctor? When grandma falls down in the house with no one to hear and she's pressing life alert. Because she knows she just broke a hip and she can do nothing on her own. Poor grandma. She needs that doctor, right? That's the person that calls out for the doctor. And here's what he says in verse 13. Sorry, Grandma. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, Jesus isn't saying that there are good people on earth and then bad people on earth. He knows there are none righteous. No, not one, says the Psalms. And Paul quotes them in Romans 1. What Jesus is talking about here is those who think they're healthy 
versus those who know and understand and believe that they need spiritual life support. And an important note here, Jesus isn't approving these guys' sin. He's not sitting at the table going, hey, bad guys, you do you, right? I'm just here to hang out with you. He says, I came to call, to, to heal those who admit that they are sick and need healing. This is the cause of following Jesus. Who, who will follow him? It's the humbled sinner who recognizes their need for a savior. Just like it's the sick who recognize their need for a doctor. On my journey, I didn't make a change until my pain was greater for, than my fear. That's when I called out for help. When my ch- pain was greater than my fear. My, my hips were falling apart. I weighed 260 pounds and I was miserable. That I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. So I called out for rescue. I called out to Mark and said, I need help. And I'll do whatever I need to do. The cost was worth it when I saw my need. And Jesus is saying, and I've come to call those who, like last week's paralytic, realize they can do nothing on their own and cry out to me and say, Jesus, I need rescue, whatever it takes. You know, it's not our sin that prevents Jesus from coming to us. There's nobody that he looks at and goes, I wouldn't eat at your table. You've gone too far, you've sinned too much. It's not our sin that prevents Jesus from coming to us. It's our own pride. That prevents us from coming to Jesus. That we live in a delusion that we think we're okay, so we don't cry out for our Savior. But the beautiful news for those who admit that they are sinners, who cry out for the Savior, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we didn't deserve to have him at our table, he died for us. He paid for that sin access us as believers, which leads us to our third point, the celebration of following Jesus. Verse 14, then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, so he's got followers too, they come to to Jesus and his followers and they go, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? They go, wait a second, Jesus, we're all over here fasting and why aren't your guys, why aren't you guys fasting? This isn't fair. Like when I started eating paleo and I'm watching people eat pizza, like what's going to happen at our next steps lunch later today? I'm going to go, that's not fair. That's not fair. Now, probably, this was a regularly observed fast. They had a lot of these at the time. But it wasn't mandated by the law of Moses. We know Jesus as a Jew, he, he kept the law of God. And so he's not breaking a law here. But, but look at what he says in response to them. He said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? It's a puzzling response. Why does he go there? He says, do, do you mourn at a wedding when the bridegroom's there? So, like, when Jill and I got married, if we were at the wedding reception and everybody's feasting and, and, and having a good time, they're dancing, and then I see Jill's parents over in the corner, and they're like, we're not eating today. And they've got sackcloth and ashes, and they're just like, why, Lord, why? I'm like, you could have just said no, right? It would have saved us all some money. Um, it's not appropriate to, to fast when you're supposed to be feasting. Because a wedding is not a time to mourn or to fast. Now, why did Israel fast? God called them to fast for several reasons. They would mourn their need. They saw and they, they knew they needed rescue, and so they would mourn this. This was also a period where they would, they would anticipate the coming rescuer. 
This was hope looking forward to a day dawning when they were currently living in darkness of their own sin. And this was also a time to set aside to commune with God, to draw near to him. They said, we're not even going to eat so that we can be with God in prayer. Now, these are the reasons that what Jesus is saying is the bridegroom has come. The day has dawned. The Messiah is right here. God is in your midst. You don't have to fast in order to be with God. God came here and is with you. So it's like them looking straight into Jesus' eyeballs and going, Come, Messiah, come. And he says, I did. I'm right here in your presence. This was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 8. So this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. The traditional fasts and times of mourning you have kept in early summer, midsummer, autumn, and winter. Lots of fasting. It's now ended. They will become festivals of joy and celebration for the people of Judah. Now, listen, Jesus isn't against fasting. Remember what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. When you fast, do this. And there will be another appropriate time for them to fast again. He says it in the next sentence. The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they will fast. So when Jesus dies and ascends back up into heaven, he says it's appropriate to fast again. And in fact, we see the disciples fasting throughout the book of Acts. Why? Because Jesus is taken away again. And there's still a time. In fact, this season of Lent that we're currently in, leading up to the, to the to Easter celebration, is a time where we fast in order to draw near to God, to, to remember we depend on Him and not, not food, and we anticipate that second coming when He's going to finish what He started. But what He's telling His disciples right here, right now, you're with me. You don't have to fast to get there. And then he makes two more analogies to drive home his point. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of cloth on, a, a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Now this first one, a little bit more intuitive for us. Um, he, you know, there, he says, if, you know, clothes shrink. Okay, that's why I hate putting my sweatshirts and flannels in the wash. I'm a, I'm a cold wash, cool dry kind of a guy. Um, an unshrunk cloth is, is going to, to shrink. And, and so if that happens on old cloth, it's going to tear a hole, even a larger hole than maybe than what you had to begin with. He says you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't put new cloth on an old cloth. Then the next one says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins are burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. This one's a little bit less familiar with us. I mean, how many of you are drinking wine and, and wineskins? How many of you are drinking wine? <laughs> Some elders in the back here with lightning. But no. um, these were animal hides. And so over time, the skins would become hard and brittle. So if new wine that was still fermenting was put into the old brittle wineskin, the, the fermenting gases would build up and that brittle uh, container would, would burst. And both the wine and the skin would be ruined. But if you put new wine into new wine skin, the skin was still flexible and it could handle the pressure from the fermenting gases. Fermenting gases, this is fun. Um, so what is Jesus' point? What is he trying to say here? He's saying something new is happening here, and just like it's not appropriate to mourn at a wedding, and just like you wouldn't put a new patch on an old piece of cloth, and just like you wouldn't pour new wine into an old wineskin, he says that you can't take the new thing that I'm doing and pour it back into your old way. 
He's referring their, their, their former way of God, walking with God through the law of Moses. Now, again, he's not saying that the old way was bad. That's God's way. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? He said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. The law was pointing toward the dawn that would come. And what he's telling them here is the dawn is here. And so the practices that you used to do in the nighttime are no longer needed. As the days get longer, as we get towards spring, you don't need your lights on as long, right? A nightlight is very helpful when it's dark, but it's unnecessary when the sun has risen. And now the sun has risen. S-O-N, yeah, yeah, oh man, okay. What does this mean? It means that Israel no longer has to access God the old way. What do they used to have to do? They had to go to the temple. They had to, if they sinned, they had to slaughter an animal. They had to go through the priest to be able to enter God's presence, to be able to worship him. And he's saying, what I'm coming to do here, I am going to become the access point that you have to God. I am going to be your new high priest. In fact, I will be your sacrifice that is, that is killed once and for all, for all sin, for all time. I am giving you direct access to God. And you no longer have to keep these 613 laws in order to walk rightly. He says, instead of that, I'm actually going to take the law and put it on your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart and my spirit. And my spirit is one that bears the fruit of the spirit. And that will become what you will bear. And what does Paul say in Galatians 5? Against these things, love, joy, peace, there is no law. He says, you're no longer going to be keeping all of these rules. You're going to be bearing my spirit's fruit. It's a new way. The first year of, of our uh, dating life, Jill and I were long distant. And I took this screenshot when we were FaceTiming and she had no idea. Which is either adorable or super creepy. So I don't know. I'll let you decide. And while we were long distant, we would, you know, talk to each other on the phone. We would FaceTime. We would text, right? We would an email. Now, imagine once she got here to Alaska, if I said, man, we're in the same room looking at each other. I, hey, could you go in the other room so I could send you this really funny GIF, right? Hey, do you want to you FaceTime? You could go over to my parents' house and we get on the No, like that would be crazy, right? Why would we go back to the old way when she's now here in my presence and I can hug her and smooch her? <laughs> Jesus says, you no longer have to live in a long-distance relationship with your God. Now that I'm here, God in the flesh, you can experience the fullness of joy in his presence. The new way to God is here. And it's no longer appropriate or necessary to go back to the old way. So the good news for us is we don't have to adopt Israel's ways that every time you sin, you have to fly to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and kill a goat, which would really rack up the bill for that kind of a commute, right? He says, you don't have to do that anymore. You can now access God through me. Forgiveness of sin is available through me. A direct line to talk to him is available in me. And this leads us to the celebration, the heavenly joy that he's calling his disciples in here as they can now enter into God's space. You know, after nine months of doing things Mark's way, of eating that strict uh, dietary food list, I didn't eat the list, I ate food off the list. Life was so much better. I lost 75 pounds. I slept better. I, I felt better. I looked better. Uh, I, I experienced 
self-control in areas that I didn't even know I had struggled with before. I had a clear conscience. I could bend over and tie my shoe. Hallelujah. Joy. Mark's way was better. It was harder, but it was better. And there is no greater joy than living in and walking with Jesus. It's worth all of the cost that he calls us to as the sick sinner is healed and restored into a relationship with our God. So, so what do we do with this? What do, how do we take this home? Look at the cost of following Jesus. And ask yourself, have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? Like, to me, to be healthier, uh, it, was, it sounded fantastic. But was I willing to act? And for some of us, we're the over-enthusiastic one. that says, I'll go with you, Jesus. I'll be with you. But sometimes for us, it's easy to follow him when it's fun, when we're being healed, when the sun is shining. But will we trust and obey him even when the road gets hard? Will we follow him in not just health, but also sickness? What about when the dry, inevitable dry spells of being a believer? When we're treated wrong? We recognize what he's calling us to. He says, I want you to die to yourself and live completely for other people and me. That's not an easy road that he's called us to. So before we get cocky and say, I'm with you, Jesus, wherever you are, let's stop and think about what he's calling us into. Or for the hesitant follower, and if I wasn't willing to change my eating that very day, I knew that I never would. And if we're not willing to follow him right now, let me ask you, when will we be? How many times we go, oh, it's a busy season right now, Lord. I know you want me to do that thing, go to that place, have that conversation, but I'll follow you when the schedule dies down. After Christmas, when the crisis is over, once the kids are a little bit older and it's a little less crazy, once they're out of the house, once we're into retirement, things finally settle down, then I'll start doing things your way. Jesus says, let the dead worry about the dead things. I want you to follow me when I say. Look at the cause of following Jesus. And ask yourself, is your pain greater than your fear? That's the moment that you're going to truly make a change. See, if we think we're healthy, we'll never call a doctor. And many of us are living under this delusion. Not that we're perfect. I don't think any of us here would claim perfection. But maybe that we think we're okay, or, or we can think of somebody who's worse than us. Or we lie to ourselves and say, I can control this thing, right? I can hop onto WebMD and figure it out, right? What do I do with that fungus, right? We can, we can control our own lives. Don't need a savior. But when we realize that we have fatal cancer, when we realize there's nothing we can do to remove our own tumor, that's the point of time when we'll cry out for help. And we'll, and we'll come to the doctor and say, whatever you need to do, do it to remove this from my life. Whatever the pain is in the procedure, whatever the cost might be, I need salvation. See, seeing the cause of our malignant sin, the thing that's inside of us that will kill and destroy us, this is not a game. That will make any cost worth it. So Jesus, whatever you're calling me into, it's better than what I've been doing. Sometimes God will graciously let us hit rock bottom. It doesn't feel like grace, but it is. Because before that, we're not going to cry out to him and, and say whatever it takes. And maybe for you, that means, and that involves confessing what's going on in your heart that nobody else sees. It means saying it out loud to somebody else. That's not easy. And for some of us, that means naming specific sin in our lives. You see, as long as th sin's just kind of a theory, then so is Jesus. But as soon as we start to name it and own it and recognize it for what it is, that's when we're going to cry out to him. 
I had to realize I wasn't just occasionally overeating. I had become a glutton. It's not just that we're dabbling in pornography. We become a sex addict. And we call ourselves, for what we are, a liar, a thief, an alcoholic. But just as real as our sin is, that's how real our Savior is. And what he's called us into, what he came to do, is to say, you no, no longer have to be those things. And in me, you can now be called a child of God. You can now be a saint. I have come to make all things new. We'll sing it at the end. We can run out of that grave and be alive. And that brings us to the celebration of following Jesus. Are you, let me ask you this, are you finding joy in the presence of your leader? Because he's come. He's come to do a brand new thing. The dawn has broken. But do we see it? When we see our cancerous sin, it leads us to following and trusting the doctor. And what's the result? There might be a painful process. It might be a costly procedure. But the cancer is removed and we have life. What Jesus came to offer us is freedom. Freedom from sin and shame and condemnation. A freedom to love and walk with him. And to do these wonderful things that he's given for us to do. It's so much better. Even though it's harder. I remember when Jill and I were long distant, we, we were counting down the days. I mean, I remember nothing else mattered to me. I just wanted to get to that day when we were no longer divided by a time zone and we could be in each other's presence. And Paul, at the very end of his life, one of the last things that he said, he was talking to his disciple Timothy, and he said this in 2 Timothy 4, he said, the prize is waiting for me. I can see the finish line. It says, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize isn't just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appealing, appearing. Paul was counting down the days. He couldn't wait. Now, here's the beautiful truth. Today, we can have joy in Jesus' presence, just like Jill and I could still enjoy each other from distance. We could still email. We could still FaceTime. We could be there. We could see each other in the eyeball. We could communicate. We could grow in our relationship. Today, we have joy in Jesus. We can walk with him. We can find freedom from sin today. We can find growth today. We can find beautiful new relationship with other people and him today. But there's a day coming when he's going to come back. And we're going to see him physical eyeball to physical eyeball and embrace him and walk into eternity to rule and reign the universe with King Jesus. That's the leader that I can't wait to return. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to not stiff-arm Matthew, the author, of the author of this book, but to sit at his table and eat with him. To come to those who would humble themselves and realize we've got a tumor that we can do nothing about. That we've rebelled against the Most High. That we've gone astray. That we've pr we're prone to wander as we sang about. That you came near. That you wanted a relationship with us. So Father, for some of us this morning, we need to hear that, that, that there's a humility we're being called to, that we would repent of our sin, that we would call it out for what it is. Maybe that one secret in our heart that we've been pushing down, we've been hiding from other people, it's time to bring it to light because the dawn is here. But what we find from you is not condemnation, but full forgiveness because of Jesus dying for that sin on the cross, a very real savior for very real sin. For some of us, we need to count the cost this morning. And say, Father, I recognize that my way is not working. And as I've seen the depths of my sin, I need to follow you. And, and, and before we just brazenly step out, that we slow down a bit and say, what is this going to look like? What is it going to look like to follow you? And what we're going to recognize 
Father, is that we don't have the resources to follow you. We can't do it. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's why we need the grace of our God to save us in the first place and then to give us the power and grace to take each step that you call us forward from here. And Father, some people today are not experiencing the celebration of following Jesus, the full joy of living in your presence. Even believers here today who are hiding in the shadows who they've heard the whispers of Satan, they're listening to the lies, that they're condemned, that they're too broken, that they're off on the sidelines. Father, that they would hear that for those who will turn and embrace Jesus and follow him, do it his way, that there's a life that's so much better. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In fact, you called us and said it'll be the opposite. But those today, Father, that we would recognize our sin, recognize what you're calling us into, we would find fullness of joy in your presence today and look forward to that beautiful moment when Gabriel blows his horn and you come back down and we get to see you face to face. And John said, whoever has that hope for tomorrow purifies himself for today. May we be a people that find Jesus as enough, our all in all, to walk with him, to find him as our good, loving leader. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.